Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. Friends, uh, delighted to have you guys back for uh, this week's TMC seminar. My name is Farrakh Curl, and I'm one of the co-directors, along with Warren Kinghorn, of the, of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture program. And we are delighted this week to welcome um, a friend and mentor, Laurie Zoloth, who is the Margaret Burton Professor of Religion and Ethics at the University of Chicago Divinity School where she's also senior advisor to the provost for programs on social ethics. Dr. Zoloth is a leader in the field of religious studies with particular scholarly interest in bioethics and Jewish studies. Her research explores religion and ethics, drawing from sources ranging from biblical and Talmudic texts to postmodern Jewish philosophy, including prominently the writings of Emmanuel Levinas. Her scholarship spans the ethics of genetic engineering, stem cell research, synthetic biology, social justice and healthcare, how science and medicine are taught, and as we're gonna to see today, COVID-19. And Dr. Zoloth has also been a long, for a long time, a practitioner of interreligious dialogue. And uh, we may hear some more about that um, today, but has been a mentor to, to many of us um, and an exemplar of how to engage in the public square um, out of the depths of a particular religious tradition in a way that is inviting dialogue and inviting um, discourse and a kind of shared pursuit of understanding of our shared world. So with that, I uh, want to welcome Dr. Zoloth. Okay, well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I think of you as a colleague. I don't think of, of you as a mentee there. Dr. Carlin. So um, I, I'm um, always impressed with both your, your practice um, as a physician and your practice as a Christian. It's very moving to me to see, see how you live your life and raise your family. It's very important to me. And I'm looking forward to um, hearing you th thinking through with you and your, and, and your colleagues there at Duke. I'm actually pretending I'm at Duke. Here at Duke. <laughs> um, some new work that I've been thinking about around for the last year, actually, before um, this all began, I began thinking about the notion of vaccination as an ethical gesture. And then of course, when COVID happened, I, in my normally worried way, began stocking up on, on supplies by January. So I've been thinking about this for a while and I'm interested in, in sharing my work with you. So here's the plan of the talk. Um, I want to give you a roadmap to where we're going. And um, as we move through, because there's, it's a lot of complicated things going on, the first part is going to be just a brief overview of the ethical issues in the COVID-19 pandemic, what makes this both distinctive and not distinctive. Part two is how religion is a central part of ethical reflection and response and how it, it ought to be, um, a position that I've held for, for many years and continue to insist is, is critical. Part three is um, focusing on Jewish thought and pandemics. There's so much to talk about, but um, 
<laughs> I'm going to focus just on the Jewish thought today because I think that it, some important and interesting things are happening in the Jewish community. I'm going to look at traditional sources, at contemporary histories. Um, I'm going to suggest finally a framework for response with a different sort of text and um, end up with a conclusion and then say thank you to all the many people who support my work. Fair enough? Yes? Okay. So part one. So here's a first general framing a general framing comment. My research is focused on the ethical issues in basic biological science and emerging technology, especially in genetic technology directed at the diseases of the poor, like malaria. But I've turned recently my research toward COVID-19, like others in our field. And I'm interested in the many ethical issues that have emerged during this pandemic, some among the oldest and most enduring questions of societies, how to have justice under conditions of scarcity, how to balance um, the, the power, the collective, and the liberty interests of the individual. What are fair limits of research? Um, what are the, are the products of research a part of the marketplace? How should a society respond when the burdens of disease fall disproportionately on vulnerable communities? Who should get access to valuable social goods when the choice is between life and death and the nature of the duties of healthcare providers when their own lives are at risk? Now, religious texts remind us that communities of faith have long grappled with these issues, and they're, therefore they're a rich source of answers to the moral questions about plagues. How ought we to live within a plague? Who is the stranger to me? What is owed? Second general framing comment, and this is after our discussion yesterday about my work as a nurse and how my, my um, prehistory in bioethics as a nurse was important in, in thinking through bioethics. And I'm gonna tell you a story about being a nurse and my, about the first time I thought about, about vaccination and about measles in particular. In the first months of training as a practical nurse, we were given the hopeless cases because well, what harm could we, clumsy and too slow, possibly do? Our instructor was a short Irish man with a brogue and big red hands, a continual stream of terrible sexist jokes and great gentleness. Hey, honky, he called to me, the one white girl in the class. Here's your patient. She's not a honky, my friend Dyla told him. She's a Jew. Okay, hey, hey, yid, he said. That was a long time ago, 50 years now. And there were jokes about penises and prostitutes and made up skin diseases. He had us write down lakanuki as a diagnosis and I was the last one to get the joke. But when he went to the door of the room, he turned to us and he said, Remember the great privilege you have to touch the bodies of the poor. And the doctor told me that my first day and I am telling you today. My first patient was a dark haired pale little boy about seven I thought, but really he was 15, completely paralyzed and catatonic. I had thought he was asleep so I looked at his chart and called his name. My instructor sighed, he's not waking yet, he said. You don't see this much anymore, but this is measles. This is what measles can do to a brain. And he helped me bathe him limb by limb, no jokes, going shh, shh, shh to the boy as we turned him. COVID-19 recalls these earlier stories. It brings forth a cascade of ethical issues. Can a state compel, compel moral action? Can, can let's see, um, who should get scarce medical goods if not, if not all can have them? But must, must I constrain my liberty to reduce harm that I cause, I may cause to others? Should social worth or utility determine access? Must I risk my life to care for others? Is it fair that the, that the disease burden falls on marginalized and historically disadvantaged black and brown communities? Can I burden shift by paying others to take risks? Can we sacrifice older workers for the sake of younger ones? 
Can we return to work if many will sicken and die? Must the carceral state release prisoners? Can the wealthy flee the city? How much must an intervention be tested before it is released? All of these questions are not new. And there's central question, there is a central question beyond this about the order of healthcare itself. The beautiful quote from um, Siddhartha Mukherjee in uh, an article called After the Storm in the New Yorker in May, early in the epidemic. Leave aside the windblown avenues of an empty, joyless city, the generation-defining joblessness that has shifted so many from precarity to outright peril. To what extent did the market-driven, efficiency-obsessed culture of hospital administration contribute to the crisis? It's an interesting question I want you to keep in mind. And all of these questions lead to very classic ethics debates. The rights of the individual versus the collective, autonomy versus heteronomy, justice under condition of scarcity, personal responsibility, truth versus the noble lie in policymaking, Socrates' favorite, ownership of bodies and the question of embodiment itself, the concept of the greater good and the concept of virtue ethics. What do our actions make of us and which virtues are important for civic life? And then we ask first, when you speak to the physicians, what, what, why are we thinking about ethics at this moment? And it's because of the way bioethics has worked, always as a discourse after, after a history of scientific involvement. And life and death decisions are a part of all healthcare choices. Obviously, we don't just usually see them as starkly as having a ventilator or not having a ventilator, but really we're rationing all the time. And there's a, the second with the scientific hypothesis in a casuistic world are always mutable. They're always fallible, and yet they're very powerful. Again, we usually feel that scientists are more certain. COVID reveals how uncertain, how mutable, and how, really how much is unknown about the world. Um, ethicists also believe that we are what's called condemned to act. We, this is called having a plight. We cannot not act. We, every choice we make, even if it's a choice to, not, to do nothing, is a moral gesture. So that's what our plight is. So therefore, we have to turn to attention to this plight before we do any gesture. And if we, even if we don't do something, if we need to turn away, we're still plighted in this way. And this action defines our characters as persons and nations. So I've been um, teaching bioethics a long time. Several of you have also teaching and this thing. So how do you do it? Well, I was teaching an introduction to principles using canonical cases and foundational texts in the midst of real-time ethical challenges of COVID. And I decided to have a bit of a, an ethics lab, so to speak. Um, to ask my students, both undergraduates and graduate students, to do original research and to do research in the middle of a pandemic. In my class of undergraduates, I focused them on a, on a quarter long project last spring on vaccinations. And why? Well, because I thought that the vaccination part was the most interesting part of what was going on at the time. And also because everybody was clustered around this having ventilators, scarce ventilators. And I thought that was actually the wrong response to this. I actually believe that the response of bioethicists should have been, <laughs> we're not gonna do this with ventilators. We're not gonna, we have enough and we need more. And that's what we should be focusing on, the needing, the needing more rather than fighting over how to divide the pie. It turned out we didn't need to. The successful development of vaccines, however, is historically the most reliable way to protect populations, though not the only way. And yet it's an unfinished project with de novo questions that are very particular to COVID-19. The weird use of a, a brand new 
um, mRNA construct that's never been used in human beings as the most important as the most important vaccine. The ideas of a trial, a challenge trial, this notion of an urgent global population target, lots of big questions that remain unsolved. And the research and development, the testing and the planned distribution or first use of this is a topic that's gonna to be of enormous public importance and should be considered urgently, I thought. And the, I use this, this is for college undergraduates in a signature class in bioethics with participation with all kinds of students, humanities, divinity, graduate students, and of course, law students. And the, we assigned to random research groups, um, real, philosophical and ethical religious responses to the, to the issue. We used primary text, or to use primary text and to use expert interviews to understand how six different religious and philosophical traditions responded to the ethical issues of the crisis in general and of vaccination in particular. So there were six small groups of eight to 10 sent to research the different moral appeals from libertarians, utilitarians, Catholic, Jewish, Muslims, and Protestants. Um, the research cord with um, sexual traditions, university scholars, and make the appeals afterward legible to policy, to a policy-driven audience. They were to imagine they're presenting their ideas about the right way to do it, um, as if religion had been invited to, it, to the public square. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not really true, but this was an ideal world. And the questions were what to ask, what was the telos of the project? How was the telos chosen? What's the relationship of the investigator to the state? What's the interstate collaboration? How is it protected? And how um, can science be self-regulated? Does it need external? What conceptual issues emerge with the choice of the target to manipulate? Do you manipulate the target, the, the host, or do you manipulate the virus? Two different ideas about how to create a vaccine, you know, ramp up the immune system or, um, or um, denature the virus. Um, essential duties, what essential duties accrued to the research? Who owns the patents and what is a fair profit? I wanted them to do a broad search in different traditions. And I wanted to ask both clinical ethical trials, are, are challenge trials ethically permissible? How should race, race, racially or ethnically diverse populations be used? Do rules about, this is going too fast, right? Do rules about vulnerable subjects mean that children and elderly persons cannot be tested? If the frail elderly are most at risk, should they be in the trial and how? What should be the threshold for stopping for SAEs? Adverse incidents, as we've seen, there's been three significant ones. Can stopping rules be changed in mid-trial as they had in some of the earlier trials for, um, for treatments with COVID? How efficacious does, the, does it have to be? Is 40% enough? Is 50% enough? Um, what about the risk of using it to enhance? Should we, we'll be attempting to enhance um, immune systems once you, had this, once you had this capacity. And let's see, we also had a basic research. So those are the two different types of questions. And of course, this was a Mark Lipschitz, um, colleague Mark Lipschitz and Peter Smith and Nair Yao early on, in as early as in May, this was in March, this was published very early in the epidemic by the first month about using human challenge studies to accelerate coronavirus vaccine licensure. This got a lot of attention. There was a website one day sooner. It made libertarians very happy, right? You could have people sign up. And the tragedy of this whole project is that of course, the epidemic is so fierce and so lethal and so enormously widespread in the community that you don't need a challenge trial. You just have to go outside on your block and get people and you'll find out very quickly if they're gonna get it or not.
And so then there was issues about deployment. You build factories from prior, they decided, yes, what's the role of the state of the global order? We decided we were, America apparently is not in the global order anymore, or WHO. What about the marketplace? Should it be free? At what level should it be distributed? Now, 70% of the world's population, which is 5.6 billion people, will likely need to be inoculated to begin to establish any sort of herd immunity or, you know, but how gets, how do you do this? Who gets it first and who sets the criteria? And how do you get to places in the world, say Africa, West Africa, where the, there's not much disease, but there's a lot of people and people travel. And how do, you, how do you deal with the world population aspects? Then there was issues of authority. There was a, suddenly a lot of vaccine resistance. And what had been resistance to vaccines in sort of a small fringe group, a group that I'm going to spend some time on, the, the Haredi community in, in New York and Israel and the evangelical community, suddenly became somewhat substantial. This is people who, this is early on in, in the epidemic. This is, these are May figures. Um, already, people are beginning to, 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 to wonder about it. And of course, now there's much more hesitancy about vaccines. I'm just going to go briefly through the libertarian group. Their idea was that um, um, comparing the responses, especially the nationwide economic packages, they did this, this sort of work. They looked at Mark Cherry's work. Um, they looked at Anne Rand, of course, the virtue of selfishness as, as their set of ideas. Libertarian group, um, and then the utilitarian group. Now, why libertarian and utilitarian? These are the two major um, arguments from philosophy non-religious secular philosophy, the powerful argument of libertarianism, which is of course this notion that one owns one's own body, the state should be minimal, there shouldn't be interference, we should, should be, people should be able free to make their own decisions. The powerful ideas of, 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 a, of a civic marketplace, um, marketplace translated to civic action, the civic values and civic virtues in the libertarian argument. And the utilitarian argument the Unitarians really found that this was the argument of public health. The driving argument of public health was that the ends of a healthy population would justify the means and therefore a strong state was important. Okay, now we're gonna turn from those two arguments, which I don't wanna rehearse because you all know them because you're Americans living by, by October after months of this debate between libertarian arguments and utilitarian arguments, you've, we've all become familiar with the power of these two arguments. Now I'm gonna to turn to part two and I'm gonna think about religion, okay? And Mary Godwin Shelley, who we know from Frankenstein and beloved by Biowethers as Frankenstein, um, after all the people that she loved in the, in the world but save one had died, after Shelley had, had her, her beloved husband had drowned, um, and his um, and her children had died, and her friends had died, and Byron had died. After all of this had happened, she came back to England. She had left England, she thought, for good. She came back from England with her one surviving son, and still quite young in her in her mid twenties, she wrote what I think is actually a far better book than Frankenstein, a magnificent book called The Last Man. Um, it was out of publication for a very long time until 1965. It is back, of course, now in publication and very much, um, very much um, pertinent to our, our um, discussions. And it's about an epidemic that, that kills every single person in the world except one, the narrator of this book. And there's a lot of reflection about 
what it is to be religious. Now, Shelley herself is raised by a militant atheist. Um, Godwin is militant atheist. And Wollstonecraft, of course, militant atheist. These are people who rejected in an enlightenment frenzy all trappings of religion. She herself is, allows her narrator to care about religion and churches and, and key events that happen in chapels. And, she, and the narrator reflects and it's at a certain point about the role of religion. During the whole progress of the plague, the teachers of religion were in possession of great power, a power of good if rightly directed, or of incalculable mischief if fanaticism or intolerance guided their efforts. And of course, tragically in this book, there's a, there's a, there's a, a war among the survivors between a fanatic religious group um, who does what she calls, the narrator calls, perverts Christianity, and, um, and, and demands a kind of allegiance, a powerful allegiance um, that turns out to be a narcissism uh, of this, the main char the character who is portraying himself as the new messiah. And the people who survive this war are, are the narrator and a few, a handful of other people um, who still consider themselves Christians in an interesting way but in tune with the love, with the notion of the love command. So this, this book about, about plagues really in, is informed largely by her, the account of Daniel Defoe. You see her epidemiology is, um, is very much of Defoe and very much um, thinking about what would cause a plague. Her own, you know, her children have, have been dying of malaria, which is a sort of an unknown fever, which is what this plague is a little bit like. And she, she thinks about, how this would unfold, but she's much more interested in, in the kind of things we're interested in, which is how, what happens to societies in the light of plague. And here's a copy of the first edition. And this actually is the actual, um, this is a picture of Fonier. This is the burning of Shelley's body, her young husband and best friend and, and um, an attendant die. Their, their ship visits Byron, who you see right here, um, is, these are Byron, Lee Hunt, and Trelawney, three poets and writers of the time. And when the body finally washed up on the shore, they just burned the body. And this is the, the way in the back, barely there, is of course Mary Shelley in shadow. Um, one of the interesting things about this is that all three of these men will be dead soon too. This is a painting by Fonier depicting Mary Shelley. Um, and she returned, as I said, with one remaining child to write this book. Now, why religion? Why is it so important to us? Well, I think in, in part because Americans experience moral action as mediated by a view of themselves in relationship to others within religious communities. And most Americans view life and death choices um, as also mediated and motivated by a view of themselves in relationship to God or to a great otherness or to some spiritual realities, often posed in terms of faith or belief. All medicine and all science takes place in this context. It doesn't take place apart from it. It takes place within a context of people who see themselves as believers in something else, something other. And in most cases in America, that, the, that great otherness is God. Public science is then funded by citizens who attend to moral and religious considerations and therefore has an obligation to them. And finally, because norms, societal norms, civic norms always exist apart from law. Law doesn't define us. Law doesn't, is not the, the total horizon of what we're capable of. 
religion asks how we make the world a decent place of habitation. So texts are important because they set in place these narratives, promises, and aspirations that are trans-historical and trans-geographic and non-state. That's why religious texts carry a story that's always greater than a particular nation state. And laws and norms offer a different sort of chance, a chance to live in the world as it should be, right? And thus scriptural texts retain these calls for social justice that are seen as absurd currently, attention to the poor and the vulnerable who are always completely outside the marketplace in our time and in the time the texts were written. And it, it, it calls us back to these stories that might otherwise be seen as completely, completely marginalized. So I had my students look at Protestants, I'm not gonna go into all of what they found there, Protestant traditions, and Catholic moral theology offered very important preferential options of the poor. They looked at Islamic traditions, and finally they looked at, at Judaism, and what did they find there? So first they had to answer the question about the nature and meaning of asking for permission to do research whose outcome is not at this time possible to define, really. We don't know where we're going with this. We don't know much about this disease or what we're really trying to prevent on some level because we don't know the actual sequelae of it. And whose parameters are constantly mutable as the technology itself is developed. And these questions, I told the students, in all of the religious traditions arise in disciplines external to the project of scientific research. And they call for a discourse that we could call strangers at the bedside, but in a greater sense, I'm gonna call these all discourses that we could call estrangement hermeneutics, a hermeneutics of estrangement, to step aside from science and to step aside from the, the panic of, of medicine, which is a legitimate panic right now. We should be panicked, we should be fearful, but to step aside from this, to look at a larger picture. So now I'm gonna look just at the Jewish perspectives instead of tease out what's happening both traditionally in the Jewish community and why is it going on? Now, it's a rapidly changing landscape. This is a recent <laughs> event. This is October, this, this just happened. This is Haredi Jewish men, and I think the, um, the gender balance is really important. It's largely young men burning masks in Brooklyn in large, unruly, and actually very violent demonstrations in which people who were reporters who were reporting on this phenomena were beaten and beaten badly. Now this is astonishing, <laughs> just astonishing. And the question is, why is this the reaction of the most of these very orthodox, very um, black hat, usually they're called black hat because of their outfits, but they're, they're known as black neighborhoods, both in, in Israel and in and in New York City, it did not happen in Chicago. It won't happen, but in not in, not in sort of dramatic ways. Um, but this, this refusal, this refusal to engage in the reality of the vaccine, refusal to, to close the schools and outright demonstrations about wearing masks, why? Especially because you wouldn't think this was happening because of Pekuach Nefesh, a core principle of Jewish bioethics. Pekuach Nefesh means literally saving a life or saving souls. In every other debate, Jewish ethicists have long used the primacy of the appeal to protection of life as the final trumping argument to approve a variety of other moral appeals. With, when the Catholics were raising questions about moral status, we went right to Pekuach Nefesh. These, this guides, for example, even the powerful exceptions to normative ritual laws 
if they might threaten life or even health, you can violate laws of the Sabbath, you can violate laws of kashru, keeping kosher, kashrut, you can violate ritual activities if you, can, if you need to save a life. So you can make a fire on Shabbat if, if, you, if it will save a life. You can um, uncover, excavate a building if, that has fallen, if it will save a life, even on the Sabbath. So things that are otherwise prohibited can be done in the name of the Kuch Nefesh. And in debates about abortion and stem cells and organ transplants and gene drives and cloning and AI, if the intervention will save lives, the sources say, by the way, it's not only permissible, but it is obligatory. It is obligatory to carry out. And this has been the, a very interesting tension between religious Catholics, religious Jews around the issue, uh, around this issue in stem cell research or in abortion, that they're a, a sharp division around this because of the idea of Pekuk Nefesh. And by the way, it extends not only by, in some commentators, um, not only to life, but Pekuk Nefesh can be used to say, to, protect, to guard the health, the life flourishing of a person. The second reason that it's surprising, there should be, is, is because of a, another major principle called Dina de Mahuta Dina, which is the law, basically the law of the king, the mahut, the law of the king of the state is the law. The principle means that for Jews, obedience to the civil law of the country in which they are viewed, which they are live, is viewed as religiously mandated obligation. And disobedience is a transgression, a religious transgression, according to Jewish law. So in the final analysis, you have to live by the law of the land, whatever that is. And if it's too oppressive and impossible to live there, you need to leave because Dina Demohuta Dina, ultimately the king's law overcomes. Finally, there's two other points that there is um, a traditional, so there's a, a, a traditional um, ban on the kind of pagan ideas that are so much a part of anti-vaccination rhetoric these powerful appeals to nature as normative are always seen as a kind of paganism. Jews do not worship nature. We do not think Jew, that, that nature is normative in any way or virtuous in any way. It is morally neutral, often the source of great trouble. And in fact, um, the great coming into the land, the, the, the land that is promised to you is full of people that, have, that worship trees and you were told to burn them, burn, you shall burn all their asherah, all their, all their little pagan ritual trees. They should be chopped down, they should, they should be destroyed because paganism is a great temptation and we vote no on paganism, all forms of it, including ones that would say, um, you know, ones that would, would, would use the appeal to oppose vaccination. Yeah. Don't go right, going back. Please go back. Okay. Second thing we go now on is unlimited liberty. There is a weak appeal for autonomy in the Jewish texts. Not even, it's not even clear that individuals are seen as individuals in the way that say Protestants see an individual relationship to God. You're always within a community. You're never free of community constraints. You can't just eat anything. There's laws of keeping kosher. You can't just do anything to your animal. You have to treat an animal in very particular ways. You can't just build any old house. You can't just create something in the public square. You're not free. You don't live in a free country. You live in a country bounded and constrained by the rules of God. And that this is really, this is called the wearing the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. So there's no expectation that you'll be free. Not at all. It's, freedom is not, not necessarily um, not necessarily a desidera of Jewish law. 
And finally, the oft-used <laughs> oft, um, tikkun olam, this notion that the world is broken, it's in need of repair, and that therefore we have a mandate to heal, has always been the third basic tenet of how Jewish medical ethics has been organized. Things are broken, things are bad, we, have, we get to it and we have a, in, in partnership with God who's left us here in this broken world without a visitation by the Messiah, we have to repair the world and heal the sick and prepare the world for the coming of the, of the world to come, for the coming of a collective messianic age. But we do the work. Now, given these three very, very powerful, and four, four very powerful um, norms, that I have taught for 40 years, what is going on now? And to oppose the wearing of masks or the closing of schools or economies would normally just be a straightforward moral choice. Absolutely, we have to close everything, no problem whatsoever. And in fact, you saw the chief rabbinate of Israel immediately made these choices and that there was a shutdown in Israel that happened initially without opposition until there was this opposition and what, where is it coming from? So I, it's my contention that to understand the Jewish view that's going not just in theory, which I, we can also talk about, but the actual practice, you have to understand what preceded this immediately. And now we're in part three um, continued, which is this notion of social knowledge, testimony and text. I'm gonna take a quick turn to the measles vaccination crisis, which preceded this just by a year. Last year at this time, I was working on measles vaccine, anti-vaccine in the Jewish community. And my theory that it was a feminist, a feminist movement um, led by women that was in, in an odd way anti-authoritarian um, and secular. So first, last year, the major epidemic that the US was facing of any kind um, in our happy before time was, was the measles epidemic. And it was the first real measles epidemic since 1963. And secondly, this was nearly entirely because of this growth of an anti-vaccination movement. And third, the epidemic had been centered in the Orthodox communities of New York and Philadelphia, the same ones that are in the streets today. And fourth, it could actually be traced to a small handful of women and to four rabbis of the associated yeshiva. And for measles, by the way, up until COVID, it was the most contagious infectious illness we know because even a, a small reduction of vaccination rates really matter for measles. And I have a, you would think an 80% versus 95 wouldn't matter, but let me just show you, this is Chicago. This is what happens if, um, if here, if there's 80% coverage, you see there's a few little cases and not much happens. Here we are day 124, still you see cases and they burn out, somewhat boring. That's 95% vaccination. Okay, but here, look at here. This is 80% vaccination. The cases start in my neighborhood, South, South Chicago. So as you can see, even a slight dip between vaccination rates right, has a tremendous impact in a disease like measles. And we are thinking actually the COVID, because it lingers in the air like measles, because it's, you're, it's infectious, um, might have the same, might have the same, the, the same capacity. And this is why getting robust vaccination rates is so critically important. 
Now, of course, this was opposed, this activity of anti-vaccination was opposed. Here's a joint statement from the Orthodox Union and the RCA. The Orthodox Union is the lay community and the RCA is the rabbinic community of Orthodox Judaism. Um, rabbinic Council of America are the rabbis. Orthodox Union is the, is the group of lay people, the, all the lay leadership and scholars. And the joint statement says again, notice the Vakuach Nefesh, Judaism places the highest value on preserving human life, right? There it is, Vakuach Nefesh. These, it's well known that those facing even a potential life or death situation are instructed to set aside the Sabbath and the keen tenets of halacha, right? And notice they're, they're making, they're saying the same thing that we're doing. It's not just prayer. It's vaccination, you have to use vaccination, and there's obligations to do it, especially for children. But here, a consensus of the major post scheme, which are the decisors, support the vaccination of children to protect them from disease, to eradicate illness from the larger community, to so-called herd immunity, and thus to protect others who may be vulnerable. Right? And in the five towns, which is the Orthodox communities in upstate, in upstate New York, there's the Gedolim, the, the, big, the big decisors encourage them. Here's a list of them here. Um, there's the, the, they go back to the winter of 84, 85. They, keep, they, they reference this. This is a, the Stiplegoyen, a very important decisor. A list of people, Shlomo Abach, perhaps the most important person to know in Jewish bioethics. Um, we see clearly his view is that one should definitely be vaccinated and the view of um, his, um, his son also. So Shlomo and um, Albach and Shmuel Albach, both big important figures, all of them saying at once, with as much power as you can possibly put together, this is usually how Jewish law works. You ask the rabbis, the rabbis show you, and then you go forward, but no, even given this power, this, the cases kept continuing, right? And even given, so it was, you could, and you could see um, how it affected um, even 18 years and over, there's, there's people who got sick. Um, in 2014, there was an interview with the main rabbi who was doing this in the Baltimore Jewish News, the leader of the anti-vax, um, Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky, the founder and dean of the Talmudic Academy of Philadelphia, whose wife, Timmy, leads the, the anti-vaccination campaign. And they confirmed on the phone their belief that vaccinations, not the diseases they prevent, are harmful. There's a doctor in Chicago, they said, who doesn't vaccinate any of his patients, and they have no problem at all, said the rabbi. I see vaccinations as a problem. It's a hoax. Even the Salk vaccine against polio is a hoax. It's just big business, right? And that notion of hoax, that it was a hoax, that even polio, even Jonas Salk perpetrated a hoax begins to be a part of the discourse in a major Jewish newspaper these people are interviewed. Now, it's a skeptical um, article, but Kamenitsky says he follows the lead of Rabbi um, Shmainahu Yosef Chaim Kamenitsky, who rules that schools have no right to prevent unvaccinated kids from coming to school. And he's extending it to say the whole thing is a hoax. And this was about polio, right? Four years later, Timmy Kamenitsky, now she's the Rebetzin, the wife, in, by the way, in a, in a society, a, a closed society in which women theoretically are very disempowered and prohibited from public expression, right? 
<laughs> have a, um, created a phone call with a wide network of other women and the, it was recorded actually by, and, and placed on YouTube so we could all see this. And what she says is just being recorded, I hope not. And she's hoping it doesn't record it because she makes the following five claims. One is that you have to make up your own mind. Notice the deep Protestantism of this, um, of this claim, not at all indigenous to, to Jewish thought. Two, the doctors are all bought off by big pharma and shouldn't be trusted. Three, the measles is not dangerous. This is also extended to COVID eventually. Um, four, the drug companies actually are so malevolent that they killed a doctor who had discovered the cure for cancer. And five, miracle stories of measles survival and pregnancy. And people talk about their own pregnancy survival stories with miracles. And then the claim that you should just trust Hashem for everything. Again, very much not a claim that emerges out of Jewish texts um, because of the, the emphasis on tikkun olam, the emphasis on partnership and response and working with and, and acting aggressively to be healthy. It's never just trusting Hashem. That's just not, that's not a normative part of, of Jewish thought. It's there, but it's not a normative part. Further, that Merck is a German company, and so is Amalek, a sworn enemy, Amalek, a, the biblical sworn enemy of the Jewish people. Um, the doctors are all taught by pharmaceutical companies, so they don't know anything except pharmaceuticals. The terrible things happen with vaccines, and they, but they hide the insert from you. Um, you have a choice, again, right? You can't trust any human being Bang, um, that, that Hashem, the name for God, gives childhood diseases a gift to strengthen them. And just say you would rather trust God rather than the doctors. That's what you should say to your doctor. And then, of course, ever heard of Amalek? And then the notion that doctors and pharmaceutical companies are perpetrating a horrible hoax to try to hurt you. And they have a magazine called, called Peach, which is parents educating and advocating for children with just the cutest um, babies ever on it. Here's one telling you bad things about, wrong things about autism. And this is their very persuasive, doesn't this look official, a vaccine safety handbook. Um, this is Peach's handbook about vaccine safety. And it, even though it has just cute graphics, it is a um, one page after another telling you not to trust doctors right? Doctors are crazy. You should decide for yourself. Notice the emphasis on personal decision-making, not, authori not authorities, right? Um, and then long articles about this. Not only, it's not only vaccines and autism, which was the original fear and the original link in the discredited autism story. The booklet states that scientists at Rockefeller Labs released an enhanced polio virus, and that is when polio became deadly. The polio wasn't deadly, and then became deadly because of research at Rockefeller Institute. The book opposes the back to sleep advice for, for um, sudden infant death syndrome. The book said that polio was cured 100% by massive vitamin D doses, but that this truth was suppressed and that big pharma lobbied for legalizing abortion because they wanted aborted fetuses for research. There you go. And that nobody needs a tetanus shot. Who gets tetanus anyway? Um, the people that teach doctors in medical schools are all paid by big pharma to convince that vaccination is necessary as a scheme. And of course, vaccinations, big pharma doesn't, is, has issues, but does not make money off of vaccination. We do know that. So all of this is contained in, in this book. Um, and that finally, a theological claim that protecting your autonomous right to choose is critical and that the rabbis are wrong 
and the doctors are wrong and that you need to decide for yourself a populist statement that is shocking given everything we teach and know about Jewish ethics. Now, the further thing is there's a construction of a victimized community, right? And they're anonymous and the anonymous says, you know, we have suffered abuses from fellow community members requesting the medical authorities and advocating for children's health. So in addition to all of this, there's the claim of civic per persecution. Um, now, it's understandable. People have promised good health. We promise that. We have a whole apparatus of medicine, but there's still death. There's still mysteries. And how sad this is. Healthy babies don't just die. This is an anti-vax campaign. And it is sad that healthy babies die of sudden infant death and other diseases. And people feel betrayed and therefore then reject modernity as a kind of way of reasserting control over their lives and the fate of their children. Um, according to the New York State Department of State and Internet Domain Registration, Peach is linked to a decade-old misinformation hotline that targeted the Orthodox community and to what's called Enriched Parenting, which is a website that peddles New Age cures from a Jewish perspective alongside vaccine hoaxes. And um, there's pictures of children picking flowers in fields of lavender, along articles that explain concern over measles outbreak is overblown. And there's articles about how to beat back to school blues and treat urinary tract infections with herbs and a form where members trade sourdough recipes and alternative cancer treatments. It's really quite extraordinary, this whole apparatus, which by the way, long predates COVID and COVID resistance. Um, and here, here's this thing about another rejection of modernity, right? Discovering support, I found strength, I contacted them, I created a friendship. So notice what's interesting about this is, this is a what looks like in every other way, if you didn't know it was Orthodox Jewish women, you would say, oh, this is like some women's support community. This is a feminist claiming of shared oppression and a feminist claiming of sisterhood is powerful, which has nothing to do really with what's portrayed in an Orthodox Jewish community of deep hierarchy and suppression of women's voices. Quite literally, you can't sing in public, you're not supposed to speak in public because the voice of a woman is considered so seductive that it would tempt men to do immoral acts. And here, look at this, the organization is, it is political organizing. Women's Circle, host a library, donate, attend our events, exciting lectures. This is political organizing at its most basic form. And I'm interested in this, like, and what's interesting is this women's empowerment and women's encirclement is really quite powerful. And again, quite odd. Where does this come from? Well, it's an external heteronomous voice that has weirdly entered this very insular community, probably from, you know, playground talk or birth manuals or shared yoga things or the midwife or something that there's all these new age ideas that really, quite frankly, are ideas about paganism that have entered into this community and then reflected back as vaccine resistance and the hoaxing of public health. They set up a library where you can educate yourself, which, which is not Jewish here. It's all this vaccine epidemic stuff, not really Jewish texts. And then they, um, if you, it, it's really all funded um, by the Seltz Foundation. They gave 
nearly a million dollars to these organizations and given hundreds of thousands of dollars in recent years to various other anti-vaccination groups. They're the first 16 donors listed as funders of the anti-vaccination film called Vaxed, which is a must-see. It's a, a, quite a series of very troubling claims about autism and MMR. So this is also an international problem. The Israeli Ministry of Health um, claims that a number of tourists and travelers brought the disease to Israel. Of course, a lot of connection between Jewish communities and Israeli communities. And then, of course, the Israeli communities became unvaccinated and the death rates were, uh, were actually considerable. And will this affect a COVID response? Of course it will, right? Of course it will. Now, what's interesting is the COVID response has mirrored this exactly, just exactly. The official responses have been um, turned to, here's what the rabbis are saying, the general obligation to vigilantly care for one's health and safety is underscored in Deuteronomy. Greatly heed your souls. Maimonides explains that although the ultimate purpose of life is to serve God, one can only do so if one enjoys health and well-being. And so citing Maimonides, um, this approach differs fundamentally from other religious traditions, such as some Christian denominations that discourage medical intervention and advocates and advocate total reliance on God. We don't do that, says Greenberg. We, we have to do what Maimonides, the physician and halakhic authority told us to greatly heed your souls, take care of yourself, use medicine. A number of biblical verses um, um, says, Green, Greenberg goes on, say you have to care for your fellow humans. Do not stand idly by the blood of your brother and love your neighbors yourself from Leviticus 19. Another verse delineates the obligation to build a fence around one's roof to prevent others from falling off. This verse in Deuteronomy 22, 8 is centrally important. The, you, build a, you build a house, you have to build, you build a high roof, you have to protect the parapet. You have to build protection in every, of, in every one of your aspects. If you build a balcony, it has to be protected. All of, if you build a, 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 a bridge over a river, it has to have railings. All of this comes back to this Deuteronomy 22 um, verse about the fence around one's roof to protect others from falling off. Even if you know you're not going to fall off, even if nobody goes on the roof, a long discussion with Talmud about this very important parapet requirement. When you build a new house, you make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. A critical, critical verse. Moshe um, Sternberg um, writes a letter to another rabbi, Kotler, about the halakhic requirement to vaccinate should this happen. They address the point over and over. Um, and, and again, the rabbinic authorities are very clear on this. Um, after these, these riots and demonstrations, the Rabbinic Council of America, again, the Orthodox rabbis, notes with great dismay the recent violent protests that have taken place about COVID. We expect government officials to apply the same standards to religious gatherings and houses of worship as they do to other activities. In other words, we support the governments. We don't condone violence. Our Jewish tradition demands we respond to challenges with careful consideration, reason, and if need be peaceful protests, but the RCA calls on everyone to observe all safety precautions, including the wearing of masks, proper social distancing, and hand washing. So the Orthodox rabbis in their, all their official dumb, not the guys in the streets, again, opposing this. Now, what do we make of this? We have this split. We have a history of refusal, oddly led by women, <laughs> 
who have who are, have been less insular, less protected because they've been working than the men. What, what do we just say? What can we say about Jewish ethics if we have the text that is so clear about the need to follow the rules of the government and public health needs and all of it, the elaborate structures. We have a history, for instance, of um, responding to smallpox with um, virulation early on in the text and, inocul and inoculation and vaccination when it, gets, when it gets discovered with no resistance. We have no resistance to polio vaccines. We have a history both, it goes back both the thousands of years to, and all the way to the 1950s with polio to say, we do this, this is what we do. Every text says that there's no controversy, oddly enough, about whether to take a vaccine or not, unlike what was happening in, um, in the anti uh, in the anti-smallpox vaccinations, which initially had some had some grumbling, um, actually led by um, Wallace, the co-discoverer of evolution um, with Darwin, but not in the Jewish community. Never, you don't find any of that in the response to literature. It's very interesting. You only find it in this no this recent refusal moment, which mirrors very closely what Christian evangelicals are saying. Or and and um, left-wing, left -wing, dare we say it, naturalist pagans are saying that there's a, a response that we see that's unusual, that seems to be widely spread and carried disproportionately among women and then the men. It's the men, of course, who are in the streets burning things. Um, I'm gonna turn from this to say, what's interesting, the most interesting thing about religion and the redemptive possibility of religion still exists for me and certainly exists in Judaism. And I'm gonna suggest we turn to a different text, which is Baba Kama, a Talmudic text, um, 60A and B. I'm not alone in this turn. This um, turn was taken earlier by Emmanuel Levinas. It's one of his nine Talmudic readings where he looks at this text and he reflects about war and, and, and violence and the necessity for taking responsibility for violence. I came back to this text not, not only because Levinas is always worth coming back to, but because Baba Kama itself is the text in which we find rules, as you'll see, about how to act in an epidemic. But the text doesn't begin by talking about epidemics. No, the text begins quite differently with talking about liability. And it's important to know from this that liability in Judaism is expressed in terms of money. Like, if you're liable for something, then you have to pay them something. So it's, that's why it's a restitution is the term. Here's our Mishnah, the first level of discourse. If someone brings on a fire, sparks a fire, or brings on a fire, which consumes wood, stones, or earth, he would be liable. As it is written, Exodus 22, five, if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so the stack of corn, the standing corn, or the field is consumed, he who starts the fire must make restitution. Now this is an odd text, and if we had more time we could spend lots of time just on this. First of all, wood and stones and earth don't burn. So what are we talking about here? It's a kind of fire that is so hot and so destructive that in fact, everything is burned. Now, I'm a Californian and I can tell you in these massive fires in which they've burned 4 million acres, um, wood and stone do burn and earth does burn. You can See, this, the fire has to be extraordinarily, so this is an out of control fire, a crazy out of control fire, right? And it's caught in thorns, so it starts in the wilderness, the uncultivated area that nobody cares about, but 
it, the corn, now, now the corn, now the standing corn, now the growing corn also is consumed. So notice starting from wilderness all the way to the, the field that being actively worked on. And the person who does this, who starts this, must make restitution, is responsible for everything, is responsible for the whole cascade of things that happen. Now, we're responsible for all the rest. Now, the Gomorrah, which is the second level of discussion after the Mishnah um, in, the, in the Babylonian Talmud, from the Babylonian Talmud, goes elaborately through the thorns and the corn and the standing fields. And then someone asks one of the rabbis in the discussion, says, well, why are we going through everything so carefully? Why don't you just say the field? Why can't, why can't we generalize? And they say, no, it's important to go through every little thing because we are responsible for all of it, for the whole cascade of destruction. And then Rabbi Joseph, a rabbi of the time, this is the second century, um, says, none of you should go outside. Suddenly the, everything changes. They're talking about fire. But Rabbi Joseph interrupts and says, it is written that none of you should go outside the door of his house till morning. As soon as freedom is given to the angel of death, extermination, he no longer distinguishes between the just and the unjust. Moreover, he even begins with the just, for as it is written, I shall wipe you out from both the righteous and the wicked. And then Rabbi Joseph weeps. So we're talking about destruction as some sort of terrible fire. Joseph, Rabbi Joseph, Rabbi Joseph says, well, Speaking of fire, it's, it's thinking about destruction in general, that if you let loose the capacity for destruction, if you let loose, if you let loose the angel of death, right, then everything is at stake. And the, the righteous and the, and the wicked will both be killed. It's a, it's a characteristic of COVID, this notion of like, it's not fair, right? Ordinary, decent human beings, wonderful human beings, and people who, you know, bad guys, everyone is just swept up in this general plague. And Rabbi Joseph isn't at this point talking about plague, he's just talking about, about, about destruction itself, the capacity for destruction itself. And he's referring, of course, to plague because he's referring to the, the Exodus story in which the, there's a killing of the firstborn, the plague of darkness, Exodus 12, 22. And in the plague of darkness, you don't go outside Jewish community, enslaved Jewish community, because the angel of death is gonna come and that's why you have to mark your doorposts with blood because otherwise the angel of death won't pass over. It might, might mistake you for someone who they should kill. And notice this, so suddenly we move from fire to plague without speaking of it through the Exodus story. Reb Joseph is overcome by his own story and he weeps in the next move here, another rabbi comes and kind of pets him and says, oh, uh, it's okay, it's okay. But the text goes on because it's not okay. He's, he's uncomforted in the text. Dr. He, Zoll, we should, we should probably wrap up maybe with this. One more thing, there's two more slides. Um, there's a right to which means another, another argument. If there's an epidemic and now they're talking about plague, if there's an epidemic in the city, keep your feet from entering it. Get it don't go near it, stay away. For it is said, none of you should go outside the door of this house till morning, Exodus. And then it said, go my people, enter your chambers and lock your doors behind you and hide but a little moment till the storm passes, the lockdown. And besides it is said, the sword shall deal death without, within there shall be terror. And Rabbi used to keep the windows of his house sealed until the time of the epidemic, 
for it is said, for death has come up into our windows. So here, of course, this core text on how to react to an epidemic, which is lock down, take it seriously, hide until the storm passes. Now, this liability for the other is fundamental and our text will end up by this very peculiar story in which God himself takes responsibility. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, I kindled a fire. So he's now the one who starts the spark. On Zion, as it is said, he kindled a fire in Zion, which consumed it to its foundations. And notice here we have wood and stone burned. We're back to the very, as if we're recalling the very beginning of the Tumulter passage. And I will rebuild it with fire, as it is said, and I myself will be the glory inside it. Extraordinary image. God, who's so powerful, then says, thus the one who set the fire has to pay is liable. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, it is incumbent on me to make restitution for the fire. God himself at this point says, even I have to make restitution. This is the powerful moment of religion itself. We live among strangers and everything we know about religion is to say, teach us one thing, that stranger you're responsible for him. God himself was responsible. This, this is such a critical command that you're responsible for the damage you might do, even inadvertently, that God himself is responsible, that you have to be responsible to the stranger above any other responsibility. And for everything that happens, the entire cascade, a text of, of liability and fidelity, this notion that the stranger, who is scary right now, is your brother, is one of the things we share across every religious tradition. The outside your tribe, outside your country, outside your place, there are others. And when they come to you, recognize them as your kin. The single great message of many religious traditions. Now, I'm gonna end there. We have further work to do. Hannah Arendt, well, we could explore how we live in a tragic world with decency and justice. Hans Jonas asks us what sort of world we create with our, with our research. Maimonides, also Avicenna and Aristotle, what virtue should the work foster? And of course, Levinas, how does my duty to the other constitute my freedom and how is it prior? So these are all further places, if you're interested in working on Jewish ethics, that we might go to figure out how really to respond to COVID beyond the, 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 the first text. Um, I want to end with this final thing. This is an unpublished report. You see the date, November 7th of last year. I was working on this at, with, at the CDC uh, committee to do this, and um, this report was never published. It was never put out. And when I ended my talk about measles last year, I said, just you wait, because measles is one thing, but there could be other organisms, and this was the organism we chose. There could be other organisms that are out there that will even be worse. And we have to make sure that people understand that, that addressing them seriously is not a hoax. And thank you to everyone, of course, to all the people who helped me do this, to my brilliant TAs, Haley Taylor, wonderful RA this year, Benjamin Campbell's last year RA, um, Yulabus, a friend um, whose book inoculation is a must read for anyone interested in this. And um, to all the bloggers who sent me YouTube tapes of these horrible phone calls, Thanks you to all of them. Okay, now I'm done. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Zola. The, uh, 
Um, we don't have time for, for many questions, although I will say that was a tour de force uh, review of of uh, some extraordinary material for those who are watching. Um, but the one question is this, in that a couple of your slides back, it, um, it said, you know, in this little moment of this, of the, of the crisis and um, the, in this little moment or this brief moment for many people seems to not really accurately describe what the COVID pandemic is. Mm -hmm. And so, I think I'm just curious out of the, your thinking uh, in the, within the Jewish tradition, um, because certainly among Christian churches that are, that are wanting to be more active at this point, um, wanting to have more freedom to meet together and so on. Um, there's a sense that, you know, we, we can't go on forever um, in this, in this mode of fully shutting down. And there is a place for, accepting risks, some level of risk. Um, I think about the fact that the person who's living in a poor country in the world today probably has a higher risk of dying in a given year from anything than a person does who's infected with COVID uh, in the United States today. Um, and that's true, you know, even up to a, a, a fairly advanced age. So when does that sort of we're going to live with risk and trust Hashem uh, come up against the, the we need to get through this little moment concern. First of all, the little moment, they're talking about the bubonic plague probably, <laughs> the plague, the Justinian plague. So it wasn't a short period of time for them either. I mean, they were willing to, to lock down for a very long time. You're supposed to lock down. The text makes it very clear. You're supposed to wait it out. You don't go out. Um, and so would they stop worship for, for those years that the bubonic plague was coming through not, Europe? Not in the... God, once the temple is destroyed, right? The temple is destroyed. The Romans destroyed the temple. The people are colonized. These are post-colonial, colonial texts, right? Um, God isn't in a place. God is always present everywhere. God is at your table, Judaism is, a, you know, that's why Passover went so well, because the thing you do at your table, right? Judaism can work. You can pray. You're supposed to pray three times a day, and you're supposed to be with 10 men, right? Um, but it doesn't have to be in a special place, and it doesn't have to be in necessarily in a minion. You can pray without a minion. Many, many people pray without a minion all the time, right? It's not ideal. You can't say certain parts of the prayer. You can only say the Kaddish in a group of 10, but short of that, you can say everything else. And, you're and, and millions of, of Jews say Shakari, Amida, Mithramari by themselves. You'll see that if you have an Orthodox colleague, you'll dash out to do it to pray because that's that. So you don't need an apparatus, you don't need public events, um, you don't need witness. That's, that's fair. Because, and why? Because of Pekuach Nefesh. It, nothing is going to override Pekuach Nefesh in, a, in an Orthodox community. And that's why it's so shocking that it's happening. Or, my Orthodox synagogue has been closed, you know, entirely. You know, and Orthodox synagogues and, and conservative synagogues, they, they haven't opened up. There. On, the, the problem is um, if you're Orthodox, you can't use Zoom as a surrogate. But if you're conservative or reform, all of it went to Zoom because you don't need to be in the same, because the space isn't sacred. 
Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Smith. I think about risk is interesting because it's not a good argument because it's the same reason you have to put a seatbelt on in a car. You put a seatbelt on a car to reduce your risk, even though your risk of riding in a car and being in a car crash, while high, tragically, in this country, is much less than dying of some infectious disease in, you know, in Burkini Faso. But it doesn't make, say anything about your, your relative, you know, their situation doesn't say anything about your risk here in, in Chicago. You know, so, um, so that it's just, it, it's an apples and oranges distinction. I understand people's, you know, deep need to be social. I, I you know me, I'm a very social person and I'm, I'm miserable, <laughs> you know, because I can't be with people the same way. And um, I'm a big family, I can't see anybody. And one of the things that I think is important is because I really believe this Pekuk Nefesh thing very deeply. You, you preserve life at all costs because the continuity of the Jewish people is really important. So that, that clinging to life thing is really, it's very big. I know it's, it's really hard. It's not the hardest thing. People did it like, you know, people lived in the Warsaw ghettos and people lived in boxes in someone's house for four years and, you know, didn't whimper. So. We're, we're going to have to have Dr. Zolov back to, to, <laughs> to, to continue this good conversation and ask you more questions for now on. Um, thank you all for joining us uh, for the seminar. Um, please stay tuned for notices of our next seminars and have a great rest of the day and a great weekend. And join me in thanking Dr. Zola. Mm -hmm.